So last week we kicked off a brand new series, Two Friends and One Hero. As Pastor John so eloquently uh, uh, stated last week, after the resurrection, uh, after the resurrection, Jesus declared himself, uh, he, he declared that the entire Bible was about him. So this morning, or actually throughout the next several weeks, our purpose through going through First and Second Kings is to see and to exalt Christ. This morning we are covering a passage, I'm going to be honest with you, is a fascinating passage. It's probably one of my favorites. In this passage, it has every middle school boy's dream, okay? This passage has drama, it has action, it has characters, fire, bloodshed, and a little bit of potty language, all wrapped up in one biblical story. This passage covers one of those events that I would have loved to have been there at this point in time to at least have witnessed what was going on. So, once again, if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Kings 18 as, you, as you're flipping there. If you spend any time with me, if you know anything about me, you know that we, as our family, we love to watch movies. We love spending time with each other watching movies. We have to pop the popcorn and, and we will sit down and we will watch uh, movies. And, and honestly, the movies that we prefer, it's a, it's a really rich variety. We, 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 we love comedies. Every once in a while, a drama will sneak in. At our house, having a 10-year-old girl, there are plenty of kid movies that are, uh, that are viewed. Uh, but we also love, uh, we love watching superhero movies. And typically, in most movies, but especially superhero movies, we see that there's a showdown between the good guy and the bad guy. So, so for example, if you, if you like Superman, you, you see Superman in a movie, typically goes against the bad guy like Lex Luthor, right? In Star Wars, you have the Jedi versus the Sith. For, the, uh, for, for those that grew up in the 80s, you have Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence, amen, or if Cobra Kai for our teenagers, uh, and most recently, we've seen Chris Rock versus Will Smith, right? There's a lot of showdowns that we see throughout, maybe, uh, maybe uh, through television, through movies. But uh, in the Bible, there are also many examples, many examples of showdowns that we see. And in those showdowns, we see the person that would be considered the underdog uh, triumph against the stronger individual. For example, if you're following together with the Seeing Jesus Together reading plan, a few weeks ago we read about how Moses, a sheep herder, uh, goes up against the mightiest man in the land, Pharaoh, and triumphed over the uh, evil empire of Egypt by the power of God. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they sang praises to the Lord, which we see in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang, the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. There's another, like I said, there's several examples. Another great example would, of an underdog story, at least, would be Gideon. He had an army of 301, uh, won a battle over the Midianites simply because the Lord was with him. Another famous showdown that we see throughout or in the Bible is, is the showdown between David and Goliath. You see, many of these examples have been uh, made uh, for the TV screen, have been made for the movie screen, and yet, if we're going to be honest, it very rarely does the story, the historical account, justice. Actually, in many of these stories, God uses, uh, or in these stories, God uses ordinary people 
who go up against the enemies. And sadly, many times these biblical accounts are taught in a way that encourage us to be like Moses. Or we see, or we, we see to be like Moses, be faithful like Moses. Or to be like Gideon and trust God. Or to be like David and slay your Goliaths. But sadly, all of those takes undercut the true message that the Lord has for those accounts. So this morning, as we progress through chapter 18, we're going to see that this chapter culminates in a showdown. So at this point in 1 Kings, Israel is at a crossroads. They are in a downward spiral because they began worshiping a lot of other gods. They started worshiping the gods of Baal. And, uh, and as Pastor John referenced last week, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they were, both, or they, they were both a couple that were leading Israel poorly. Ahab wanted to worship the Lord, and yet the queen Jezebel drew the Israelites to worship Baal. And also, as we covered last week, God raised up a prophet. God raised up Elijah and had given him the mission to show that there is only one true God, and that is Jehovah. He was also to call Israel back to God. So at the first part of chapter 18, we see that there's been a drought for three years. Elijah approaches Obadiah, uh, who oversees King Ahab's household. And this leads to a confrontation between King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. We see in chapter 18, beginning in verse 17, the word of the Lord reads this way. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets prophets of of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. First off, we can agree that's a big table, right? We We see in this portion of the passage, it sets up this ultimate showdown. As I mentioned earlier, it sets up this showdown between Baal and between Yahweh. We also see that there's stark differences between these two. You see, not all roads lead to God. Not all religions are the same. We see that Ahab and Elijah meet, and Ahab blames Elijah for being the one that has brought trouble to Israel. Being that, uh, that they were in a three-year drought, Ahab had to find someone to blame. And you know what? It might as well be Elijah. But if we look a little further back in the Old Testament, we see that Elijah was actually not the one to blame. In Deuteronomy 28, it is very clear God plainly told his people that famine would be the result of worshiping idols. So Ahab disregarded that and he resulted, and, uh, or, and, and as a result, received God's judgment. And rather than repenting, Ahab blamed Elijah. You see, I think it's safe to say that Elijah is not in a place that he would desire to be in. He is on the receiving end of being blamed for famine in the land of Israel that has caused much pain, much sorrow, much death. And he's being blamed by the king. You see, Elijah facing the hardship reveals something for those of us that are in Christ, which brings us to our first point this morning. The Christian should not expect their life to be free of hardships and persecution. You see, simply put, this is not a place that many people would desire to, uh, to be in. 
It's not exactly clear why Elijah is being blamed. Is, is Ahab implying that Elijah's belief in only one God has aroused the wrath of Baal? Is, is Ahab blaming Elijah for the criticism that he's received from others who are upset by the drought and are pointing their fingers at the king? Or is, or is Ahab simply grown weary of the drought and wants to blame someone and Elijah's just the best candidate? We don't really know, but regardless, it doesn't change anything. You see, it put, uh, it, this, is, this is something that we have seen throughout the Bible. Prophets are persecuted. Believers face persecution. This, is results as, uh, this results in the people of God facing persecution on this side of eternity, which means hardships are to be expected. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward. Uh, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, there are many accounts of prophets facing persecution. There are many accounts of Christians today facing persecution. And not only persecution, facing hardship. And this goes against the culture, this goes against what our culture teaches us and what our culture wants us to believe. They want to equate a life in Christ as a life full of, ra of rainbows and sunshines. But unfortunately, we live in a sin-cursed world, and sin impacts everything. And one of the problems uh, that we face when we believe that the world should be perfect and our relationship with God is based on, based on our feelings is that whenever something goes wrong, Whenever you have a bad day or whenever you're in an uncomfortable season, you throw out all the blessings that God has given you and you begin to question your relationship with him. You see, Elijah's being blamed by the king. He, if, if he expected the easy life on this, side of, on this side of eternity, then he would simply be questioning the faithfulness of God at this point. If you're in a season of persecution or hardship, do not be encouraged our reward is not on this side of eternity. And while there are many examples of hardship throughout the Bible, we see Elijah corrects Ahab and proposes a showdown on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a mountain range, uh, is a mountain range of limestone and flint that contains many caves off the Mediterranean coast. It sits near uh, modern-day Haifa, and there are many. There's much history um, at this mountain. Egyptians call this uh, call uh, Mount Carmel the Holy Head, which suggests that it was a sanctuary. And a Syrian king referred to it as Baal's Bluff. So therefore, this this uh, this location is 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 the selected battleground, not because it was a great place to watch a fight, but because it was the location of Baal worship. To put it in sports terms, Elijah was going uh, was was going to be playing a road game against the Baal. And against Baal worship, because Baal worship was still being practiced at this point. Elijah offers the, uh, offered to see the prophets on their turf, which theologian John Ali, he summarizes it this way. He says, its location is favorable for the worship of Baal and Ashram with the lush vegetation due to the headland encouraging rainfall. It was also the site of the broken down altar of the Lord. Yahweh's altar had been pulled down and now... Baal was celebrated there, which brings us to our showdown. Beginning in verse 20, 
In chapter 18, we see this. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different options? I'm sorry, two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If ba- if, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am, the, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut, cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Verse 24, and you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of, of, uh, of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, crying, cry, uh, uh, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. That's a good line. Or he, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Verse 28, they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ablation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to, the, uh, said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord uh, saying, uh, came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built the altar, built an altar with the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as it would contain two seeths of seed. And, uh, and he put the wood in order, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, if you guys are ever making a campfire, this is a horrible process. He says, fill up four jars with water and dump it all over the burnt offering of the wood. The verse 34, he said, and he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the Belgian, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, 
and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and the people and when all the people saw it they fell on their faces and said the Lord he is God the Lord he is God and Elijah said to them seize the prophets of Baal let let not one of them escape they seized them Elijah brought them uh, brought them down to the book of Kishon and slaughtered them there see this is where things heat up Elijah had proposed this showdown, and he wanted to settle this question once and for all. Elijah was calling the people to decide, who will it be, God or Baal? And he wants to sell it for good, so, so Elijah summons all, the, uh, all of Israel to meet at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And, uh, and as we said, you know, I told you earlier, this passage, this passage has it all. But it's important that we know that the purpose of this meeting at Mount Carmel, it was not to cause a circus, and it was not, to, uh, it was not for the purpose of entertaining. It was to demand a choice between Yahweh, the one true God, or Baal. This passage also discredits the notion that all religions are the same, which I pointed to earlier. And at the same time, it highlights the dangers of subscribing to false religions, which brings us to our second point on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal and Elijah reveal the contrast between false religion and the true gospel. We see in this passage there's a dramatic dis, uh, difference between false religion, between the worship of false gods versus the worship of the one true God. And the same thing can be said about uh, giving worship to false idols. You see, it'd be very dangerous for us to believe that we do not deal with false idols or, false, or worship of false gods in present day. This is not something that was only present in the Old Testament. And just like in Elijah's day, there are hundreds of false gods and thousands of false gods. And there are even uh, more potential idols in our lives that, if we aren't careful, can creep into an unhealthy position in our life. John Calvin famously said, The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. You see, when we see the prophets of, of Baal and Elijah, we see that there's a contrast in Baal's false religion and Elijah's, worship, and Elijah's worship of the one true God. So we see that there's this contrast between false, false worship and, uh, and the true gospel. So we see for false gods, false gods require your efforts for their approval. You see, when we see during, this worship, during, the, during their worship, the prophets of Baal called out to Baal. And there... Uh, they were silent. They were limping around the altar. They cried out more. They cut themselves. Everything they were doing continued to escal escalate until they finally gave up. But their thought and their approach was to continue to give more. You see, the same thing happens with false worship or, false, uh, or worship of, of idols in present day. We are constantly trying to prove ourselves. If you were worshiping a false God, you're, you're constantly trying to prove yourself. If, if, if we practice enough, whenever we're talking about our idols, if we practice enough or if we, if we, if we, if we put off enough or other things in our life and we get this promotion, if, after we work long, tiring hours, then we will finally get satisfaction. Yet the result is always the same. It always results in exhaustion. So as I said, a contrast, the true God is known by grace through faith, not our works. 
You see, there could, be, uh, or there could not be more of a difference between the responses of, uh, of the prophets of Baal and Elijah. While the prophets of Baal were trying to get uh, Baal's attention by, 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 by strenuously dancing, uh, Elijah prayed. You see, the gospel is unlike any other religion. Every religion says that your acceptance is based on your obedience. Other religions say, I obeyed, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel is not like other religion. It turns the whole system of religion on its head. The gospel is not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But I'm accepted by a gift of God's grace. Therefore I obey as a loving response. The next contrast we see is the false gods bring harm to you. We see that this is true in verse 28. The prophets of Baal, they were seen cutting themselves with their custom swords. Blood is flowing. Um, and this, 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 this serves as a reminder that false gods have harsh expectations. Idols are known to abuse their worshipers. Philip Ryken, he summarizes this point so well. He says, the Bible teaches that it does matter who or what we worship because false gods always harm their followers. If we worship worldly success, we will pay for it with spiritual failure. If we worship comfort, we will pay for it with spiritual unrest. If we worship sex, we will pay for it with broken relationships. If we worship risk adventure, we may pay for it with a broken body. False gods always exact their price. So while we see that false gods bring harm, in contrast, we see Jesus brought harm to himself. And this is something that the, that the disciples are actually very confused about in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, for, uh, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Verse 55, and they, 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 but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. You see, Jesus and the disciples were rejected in Samaria. And their conclusion, the disciples urged Jesus to do what Elijah had done. They wanted him to call down fire and to prove that he is God. But the disciples, they didn't get it. Jesus did not come to bring down fire like Elijah. He, he is the sacrifice that will receive the fire of judgment on behalf of his. And while the prophets of Baal were slashing themselves and bled for their God, Christ is the one who bled for his. We also see the false gods are ultimately powerless. You see, after all the dancing and the shouting and the cutting, we see Baal's response in verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ablation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. When worshiping or trusting in a false god, you will be left disappointed. You will be left empty. You will be left frustrated. And when you look at, the worship, at false worship in comparison to true worship, you will see that there are a lot of elements 
in the details. You see, the prophets of Baal worshipped how they pleased. They worshipped how they wanted to. They did whatever they wanted to do. And they continued to strive to please their false god by continuing and just, just going off script and doing whatever they felt would get his attention. You see, whenever we look at the false, uh, we, we see the, uh, that Elijah worshipped the way that God, uh, in a way that pleased God. He not only worshipped uh, the right God, but he also worshipped him in the right way. Which we see in the contrast that the true God answers by a miracle. You see, Elijah's plan was brilliant. He knows that when God performs a miracle, there will always be doubters. So he ensured that it was as clear as possible that, the on, that only God could start the fire on Mount Carmel. Elijah made sure that everyone could see how soggy the altar was. He wanted to prove that whenever fire came down and consumed this altar, that it was a miracle from God. Only God could consume the entire sacrifice on this altar. Verse 38, And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Nothing was left. No bull, no wood, no stones, no dust, no water, nothing. We are reminded that God uh, we, were, we are reminded that God is his own proof. And while Elijah was able to disprove Baal, only God is able to prove himself. And the same thing can be said in present day. You see, we are able to engage with others in regards to the good news of, uh, to the good news of Christ. And we're able to disprove the false gods in our world. We can talk about intelligent design of our universe. We can discuss the reliability of, the, of biblical history. We can, give, uh, we can give many persuasive and convincing arguments about Christianity, but only God can prove himself. This miracle goes far beyond this occurrence at Mount Carmel. God provided a miracle at Mount Carmel to prove himself. However, this miracle foreshadows the ultimate miracle, which brings us to our final point this morning. Elijah's prayer reveals the real, revealed the real miracle God's ability to bring one's dead heart to life. You see, this is not a minimization of what took place here on Mount Carmel. In fact, uh, the fact is that the Lord proved himself, and by proving himself is something that is extremely amazing. But the real miracle is revealed in Elijah's prayer in verse 36 and 37. And at the time of the, of the offering of the ablation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. You see, after, um, it was after this that fire from the Lord, as we just read about, consumed the offering. But that isn't the biggest miracle that we see in this passage. The biggest miracle is seen in this passage is that God is in the business of saving sinners. In verse 37, it reveals that the Lord is the one that turns the, turns the people's hearts back to him. In today's passage, we see that the, that the Lord used Elijah to rescue the Israelites from the worship of false, go, uh, false gods. This foreshadows what Christ came to do. He came to rescue his own. This reveals that grace, that the grace of God that he has for his creation 
And just as the Israelites were in desperate need uh, for water, they were even more desperate in their need for the Father. And as we could close out this passage, we see in verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of of the uh, rushing of rain. And Ahab went to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to Mount Carmel and bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot, and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, after, or, I'm sorry, in a little while, the, rain, the heavens grew black, and the clouds, or with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode off and went to Jezreel. You see, there were, there were three years of drought in the land of Israel. The Israelites were desperate, and all this was the result of the worship of false, of false gods. And much like real worship brought back to life, uh, brought life back to the land of Israel, this foreshadows the living water that is offered through Christ and his gospel. Author and pastor Tim Keller, he wrote this. He said, Jesus is the only God that if you find him will satisfy you. And if you fail him, will forgive you. Other gods, leave you, uh, other gods don't leave you satisfied. They leave you they, they leave you wanting more. They, they, they leave you unsatisfied. Other gods, if you fail them, they crush you. False gods like Allah, if, if, they, if you fail him, he will crush you as well. In a system of reality, the Buddhist god, if you disobey, then you will have bad karma forever. Secular gods of popularity, beauty, money, fame, success... They say, if you get me, I will make you happy. If you fail me, you will be miserable. But Jesus says, you have failed me. I forgive you and receive you. Not based on what you've done, but the price that I've paid to save you. As we close, there, are, there, are, uh, there may be some that are here this morning that are experiencing the emptiness of false worship whether that is the worship of the false god or, or an idol has crept way too, way too high in, the, in your list of priorities in your life, the results are the same. Emptiness, frustration, exhaustion. The exhaustion of trying to earn one's favor. But if you'd like to hear more about the uh, comfort that's offered through the gospel of Christ, we'll, we'll have some of our elders down here at the front this morning. We'd love to tell you more about who this Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are so grateful for the love that you have for us, and we're thankful for Christ. And God, I just pray this morning for those that are here, if there's anyone that has, a, that, that has had false idols creep up in their life or false worship that has left them wanting more, that through exhaustion they will just come to you and say, Jesus, I want you. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we see and realize and rest in what the gospel offers, and that is satisfaction through Christ.
through his works and not our own. And guys, we've read this morning, Elijah and uh, facing the prophets of Baal, this is not a story of um, being faithful like Elijah. There's some to that. But it points us to what all the scripture points us to, our need for Christ and his deliverance. God, we worship you, we praise you, and I pray there's someone here that wants to hear more about Christ. They'll find one of our elders before they leave, Lord. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.